Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. I'm Jayashree Pandya, founder of Risk Group. I'm also the author of the book, The Global Age NGIOA at Risk, where NGIOA stands for nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. It is with great sense of humility and personal responsibility that I, have, I am embarking today on this meaningful mission to address the rapidly changing fundamentals of the digital global age. I firmly believe that like many before me, I too have to shoulder a sense of personal responsibility to help make sense of the digital global age. I strongly believe that if enough people across nations get concerned about the state of affairs within their nations, cyberspace, geospace, and space, it would certainly help bring about a positive security change, which is a global need. I sincerely hope that the discussion in Risk Roundup will initiate a much needed dialogue, integrated strategic risk dialogue that would go beyond nations' geographical boundaries. That itself would be a remarkable achievement. Anything more will be a bonus. So here it is, kicking off the Risk Roundup, an integrated strategic risk dialogue series. I'm delighted to welcome our guest for this week, Joseph Grybowski, an expert in national security and international affairs, Nobel Prize Peace Prize nominee Joseph Grybowski is one of the world's leading voices on international diplomacy and policymaking. His expert opinion has been sought after by the United States Congress, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and United Nations. So much to talk about. So welcome, Joe. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Okay, so as we begin, let's first talk about your background and your current efforts and initiatives. One question that I would uh, like to ask is, what attracted you to security and peace? Um, my background is actually in uh, the intersection between religion and security. And well before 9-11, uh, I had been talking about the necessity to look at non-traditional threats to security. Um, back in the, the 70s or 80s, even early 90s before the fall of the wall, uh, everything was talked about in terms of Cold War strategy, and it was mutually dis assured destruction. It was how many guns and bombs do you have versus what are the ideologies, what are the mindsets, what are the, the motivating factors that lead to, to conflict. And so um, I've worked very uh, uh, focused over the last uh, quite a few years on what that intersection is between religion, security, and then uh, post 9-11, where that comes in terms of radicalization and extremism. Great, wonderful, glad to know about that. Now, what do you think is your biggest takeaway from your years of effort towards global security and peace? Um, I think one of the things that, that we all have to think about if we talk about um, global security issues is that we don't live in the, the Cold War era anymore of two global superpowers that have divided the world. That now we live in a multipolar world not just of states, but of non-state actors. And uh, as you said in your introduction, it's very important that we look at these things that go beyond state boundaries. Um, I, I really think we were moving into a post-Westphalian system where the concept of the traditional understanding of the nation state and boundaries and sovereign control over territory has shifted and changed. Um, ISIS has proven that um, that concept of borders, boundaries, and control don't exist anymore. Uh, Al-Qaeda has done the same thing. Um, even in, a, even in, a, in a, a, a different security context of global business, the multinational corporation has demonstrated that business is done 
across borders, across multiple borders, that have to take into consideration differing laws, differing realities, and differing conditions. And so I think the biggest lesson that anyone should get out of, of where we are today in terms of security is that we have to look at not just the, 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 the differing realities of, of where things look regionally or even nationally, but take a step back and how that plays into a much larger geopolitical system. Oh, you're, I agree to your assessment, and I think it's uh, very important that our audience, you know, understands this uh, broad global, you know, uh, status right now, how things are. What is the top thing you could, you would like to change about how nations work towards security and peace? Because you have so much experience. You have been working in this field for so long. You have first-hand experience, uh, first-hand experience with how, you know, things are being done. So what would you think that, you know, I wish that was here and, you know, we wish that nations would work in this way to make this, you know, something more uh, realistic and more possible? Sure. I, I think there are two things that I'd really like to see shifted. One is I think there needs to be a greater recognition that the butterfly effect is not just an environmental issue, it's also a, a political issue. And that what is said and done in one country has impact on what happens in others. And so, you know, we look, we talk about the, the horrible um, uh, refugee crisis in, in Europe, but we're not talking about what caused it. We're not looking at the fact that the, the lack of the international community's response to the Syrian conflict and the lack of true development in Africa have led to a, a desire of millions of people to get up and move. And so we're never talking about what actually caused the problem. We're only reacting to the immediate problem. Uh, and I think it's very, very important that we take that butterfly effect of politics into consideration. The other is I think we need to start thinking it better in terms of soft power. Um, and that's really a problem, I think, much more in the West um, where where power is exerted much more and where power is, um, uh, uh, is projected. And so, you know, we look at um, today, the, the vote on the Iran nuclear uh, deal in the U.S. Congress. It was a partisan vote to make a domestic political purpose, not taking into consideration what that means for the other five countries that are involved in the negotiations. Um, it doesn't take into consideration the role that we have on a global stage in a 24-hour news cycle with Twitter, with things like Google Hangout, that you know, technology exists for the entire world to watch what we're doing. And I think a great lesson that all world leaders, but especially the United States, needs to, needs to learn is that, that if we are to, to really be the, the, the lone superpower, the way both parties in this country want us to, or at least say they want us to be, then we have to act like that on every possible level. And I think that integration, cooperation, and ability to work together is something that uh, we see is a critical challenge, you know, across nations, not only United States, but, you know, across nations, uh, I would say. So uh, I think uh, it's uh, fair that, you know, we start uh, this uh, dialogue with a focus on global peace. Right. Risk group mission is to achieve global peace. And uh, we believe strongly and firmly that, you know, global peace is achievable through risk management. Uh, we believe that risk management, security and peace walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, 
Risk management is related to the management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict and it is not possible to conceive any one of three without the existence of the other two. Okay. All three concepts feed into each other. I believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secured for everyone across nations. Okay. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. What are your thoughts on the triangular linkages between risk management, security and peace? I think the the um, analysis that you just gave is fundamentally correct. And I think that's also, um, if we want to take a step back, you had asked me the question before what I wish we, there could be a change. Um, what you're talking about is a strategic approach to security. And what I'm seeing more and more across the global stage is that we don't think strategically in terms of either peace building or security but we think in terms of what's the immediate problem that we need to solve then we can move on to the next one and so without taking into consideration what the risks are how best to manage them how best to reduce them then we don't take into consideration um, what the future threats might be and so we can never really be fully secure if we're not looking at what our immediate, what our short, medium, and long-term uh, risks are, this crisis mentality approach that you just talked about—that we, uh, our nation's governance, most of the nation's governance, you know, uh, work with, like you know, let's fix the problem, not worry about uh, what would happen in future. That you will see across industries also, and that we see that you know the way risk management itself is conducted. For example, risk management when we talk about we focus on legal risk, compliance risk, operational risk, and so on. But the almost 70% of the risk management portfolio is about strategic risk. And nobody is paying attention to that. That is a very, very critical challenge, you know, facing uh, across NGIO. That means across nations, government, industries, organizations, academia. So the approach to risk management itself, I believe that it needs to be re-evaluated that, you know, what is more important? Uh, do you want to focus on small, small risk or do you really want to focus on the strategic risk that has a bigger impact on us? So. Having said that, I think, you know, let's uh, focus on a little bit on cyberspace and cybersecurity. There is a fierce power struggle raging on in the cyberspace. The new cyber battleground is full of unknowns, including major players, minor players, and rules of war. In this high-tech cyber battlefield, the casualties have been quietly piling up. It seems every nation has been hit and is in the process of being hit. No one is being spared, including common citizens. Right. This high-tech cyber battleground brings each nation, the good, the bad, and the unknown. The blurring boundaries of cyberspace with geospace and space has pushed each nation to a significant decision point today as they must continue to defend their current systems and networks in the geospace and space while simultaneously struggle to get out in front of their challengers and competitors in the cyberspace, which, which involves you know, thinking strategically. This is by no means an easy task. How can entities across nations successfully manage this complex uh, task that is ahead of them? Um, I'm a firm believer that when we talk about strategic risk, but we also talk about the, the current geopolitical reality, that we have to take into consideration what future threats are. And those future threats don't just come in the... In, uh, this in the traditional warfare and the terrorism warfare, but it also comes in cyber warfare. And 
one of the things that that because the internet still is very much a wild west there is no governance structure there is no you know and it does cross national born boundaries um the the cybersecurity threats and the cybersecurity warfare that takes place now is creating an entire new concept of how to engage in diplomacy in business and in warfare um part of the problem is that most people who are at least in the west that are responsible for creating the strategies behind cyber defense and cybersecurity come from a traditional warfare background they're generals who who you know know how to fly a plane or they know how to, to lead a, a battalion but what does it mean to lead a room full of hackers and so it's a it's it's very much new technology in the hands of old mindsets and so you know we're we're setting up we're we're reusing strategies like Eisenhower used on D-Day but applying it to cyber technology um what we really need is to take a lesson from groups like anonymous and while I don't support their their methods I you know I I you know understand where they're coming from we need to take the you know the the ideas and the mindsets of of younger hackers and use that white hat version of hacking to protect national interests to protect national values but also to protect national um uh, defense yeah you are absolutely right i think you know you are talking about the heart of the problem that you know our mentality our approach our infrastructure everything is from a different era and now we are fighting wars of you know cyberspace which is entirely different we are not ready the infrastructure is not ready the war weapons you know uh, are not understood and you know the actually the meaning of security is not understood itself because security as for much of human history the concept of security largely as you say revolved around use of force and territorial integrity that definition is no longer accurate in cyberspace because to a large extent while it still holds i think for some instances in geospace to a large extent nations no longer face as they have so often in the past a conventional threat of attack right on the geographical territory by hostile powers cyberspace doesn't have traditional cyber boundaries so but we are more vulnerable to many other kinds of attacks and uh, in cyberspace and the nations are moving as nations are moving towards one of the most open societies in a world that is more connected than ever before without the necessary security framework and infrastructure so what implications do you see for of the changing nature of security do the generals uh, i'm sure you know they understand the meaning of security in a traditional form but are the decision makers i would say you know across and this is not only about military this is not only about government this involves industries and academia and you know even common citizens do you think that they understand the changing nature of security and what it means oh oh absolutely not and and actually i think the ashley madison case is the perfect example of that um you know here we have millions of people who sign up to what they think is a secure website um to engage in in you know whatever they were engaging in but the point is is that there's the assumption that well we're paying to belong to this which means they're they're certainly going to have all of the right kind of cybersecurity measurements in place um but the reality is we live in a universe now where there is no such thing as privacy and there is no such thing as secrecy that if somebody wants access to something that is digital they can get it and when it does come to when it comes to business security but more importantly when it comes to things like homeland security um i'm i'm terrified at the ease by which hackers are able to 
to access our national power grid. And I'm terribly frightened about what that could possibly mean in terms of, of the next terror attack. We don't need to have planes fly into buildings as we remember this 14th anniversary of 9-11. We don't need to have a dirty bomb sailed up, up the Hudson. What we need is a really smart kid with a laptop who knows how to access uh, you know, the, the uh, nuclear power stations or knows how to access the, the electrical power stations and just, just shuts down the grid. This is a very scary time, you know, in uh, your words, because uh, I think it costs very little for someone sitting in any corner of the world trying to hack. It costs them very little to, you know, have a cyber attack. While for people who has to defend their infrastructure, their, you know, systems, their uh, critical infrastructure, you know, energy or, you know, any uh, infrastructure we talk about, it, it is very complex to protect. It's very complex to defend that. And that brings up two things. One is, um, I'm sure you remember, maybe about a month or two ago, we had uh, an airline passenger who hijacked an airplane with his iPhone and was able to fly it sideways and raise the, the altitude just to be able to prove that he could while he was on the plane. Um, how do you deal with this in terms of you know, critical security uh, and infra infrastructure security? The second point is, if you've got a hacker hidden somewhere in a Moscow basement or somewhere in an Islamabad um, coffee, you know, internet cafe and they carry out cyber terrorism, who's responsible? You know, the traditional understanding of responses don't work with traditional terrorism, let alone with cyber terrorism. So in 2003, we invaded Afghanistan because Afghanistan hosted Al Qaeda. Well, what does that mean if we've got, you know, just a, a, an ideological teenager in a, in a, internet cafe in Paris. Do we invade Paris? How do we deal with this? How do we, you know, how, what, what's the, what's the, the security and the, and the, the, you know, the police response to these kinds of actions? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, who is responsible? Who is accountable? Right. Right? That is the, at the heart of, you know, this problem. Now, you know, this, it is a very complex situation because, you know, right now, everything, Everyone, industries, organizations, academia, individuals, everyone are interconnected, interdependent. And we don't have the right framework by which, see, there are two kinds of risk. One is independent risk, private risk that any entity within any NGIO, they can, you know, manage on their own. And there are those interconnected, interdependent risks, which they are not, which no entity can you know manage on their own and who is responsible for that because unless we address those risks the interconnected interdependent risks how are we going to be able to manage those bigger security challenges so i think there are a lot of things at play here we have to think about the framework we have to think about what would motivate people to do better to work towards you know a global peace rather than create you know crisis and you know create war so we need to have a fundamental cultural change or awareness that it is yeah it's just because it is possible to hack something just because it's possible to do some damage to others is it good to do that is it something that you should address or you should go forward with that because unless they understand right from wrong they are going to you know a lot of times youngsters they feel they feel very excited about you know just being able to do something without seriously thinking about what's the impact exactly going right. to be so well, you know, one of the, yeah. i'm sorry to interrupt one of the things that that has stood out to me is that that mit has started requiring ethics courses 
because even certain, you know, certain parts of academia have begun to recognize that just because we have the technology to do something, just because we have the science, we have the knowledge, we need to start teaching people that, as you put it, doesn't mean we have to do it or that we should do it. And so there really needs, I, I really don't think that as a, at least as a culture, the United States has reached that, that moral or ethical level that matches our technology. But two, we also haven't reached the legislative or, or legal frameworks to deal with these issues either. Um, you know, one of my favorite examples is something called the Foreign Agents Registration Act. Um, it was passed in 1938 by the U.S. Congress to, to monitor Nazi propaganda in the United States. So if you're a foreign uh, agent in the United States and you're, you know, uh, a lobbyist for a foreign government or a foreign company, you register with the Justice Department. The problem is that this office has no framework by which to deal with things like social media, emails, um, Twitter and Facebook, you know, make their, their heads explode. So here we're talking about very simple things like communications and registration. Now think about that in terms of, of security, that if, you know, if, if our parliaments and our, our legislatures haven't caught up to the, to the 20th century reality of technology, how do we ever expect them to get caught up to the 21st century realities that are changing on a daily basis? It is not only just the legal legality or the regulations and things like that that are not in place, but we need to have a proper structured framework, which I think no nation has been used to developing such, you know, structured effort towards, you know, managing this kind of uh, critical security risk. But we, we are in a time where computers, connected computers, computer code and internet has connected everything, cyberspace, geospace and space. So we need to, it is sitting in any place, any remote place in the world, anybody can do damage not only to the cyberspace and cybersecurity, but also to the infrastructure things like, you know, we talked about in the geospace as well as, you know, who knows, maybe in the space. So we need to have a very integrated structured approach by which we can manage those kind of risks, by which we have an ability to identify because see these kind of risks no one person can identify or no one entity can identify on their own what are the critical cybersecurity risks. We need to have everyone involved. And when we are trying to get everyone involved, we need to develop proper structure so that they will be able to identify the risk facing, you know, their initiatives as well as, you know, that uh, something that could, uh, you know, impact the others who are connected to those, their risk. We need to have proper incentives. I mean, and a government NIST framework that has just been released, they're talking about, they're promoting public-private partnership, but, uh, you know, I, I feel that, you know, just by saying, okay, let's do public-private partnership, I don't think it's going to be that effective because everyone needs some kind of motivation why they have to do certain things. One is that, you know, their inner satisfaction that, yeah, they are doing something, you know, to help uh, take the world towards, you know, bigger, you know, global peace or things like that. And so another thing is, you know, they may require, some of the people require incentives, like financial incentives, that, yeah, if you, you know, identify such risk, then you would get such and such reward. So there are different kinds of people that needs different kinds of motivation and incentives. So we need to come up with a proper incentive structure and we need to have a proper dialogue about it because, see, each nation, as we all know, is made up of government industries, organizations, and academia. And they all, each one of them have a separate role in the existence of a nation, but they are all 
invariably linked together having a coexistence and mutualism sort of symbiotic relationship so the relationship between ngio is advantageous which benefits all within a nation and harms neither the close interdependent prolonged association brings each ngio each one of us opportunity as well as risk now mutualism coexistence of ngios in the cyberspace geospace and space is supposedly the ultimate mystery calling or the ultimate goal of a digital global age while each ngioa is at a different maturity level across nations with different formulation different processes different tools and techniques different culture and traditions values and thinking uh, tools and complexities seen across nation it is this diversity and complexity that makes evolution to symbiotic ngioa mutualism painful problematic but possible so i feel that amidst ruthless competition of globalizing digital economies the reality of the complex problems and current challenges of the cyberspace sheds doubt on the necessary cooperation of ngioa within and across nations government industries organizations and academia however it is fundamental to understand that survival in a digital global age is a case for cooperation at all levels of ngioa if survival success progress development and order and balance are to be maintained in a in a digital global age the integration of interconnected and interdependent ngioa is vital so while most agree to the need of integration like you know we were talking there is very little effort to move ngioa towards integration and integrated governance and management framework what are your thoughts on ways to bring about such monumental governance as well as management change I, I think you're absolutely right that this kind of integration is fundamentally important and necessary. The problem is the simple conversation is not yet being had. That um, you do this on a daily basis. You have these conversations, but we don't see policymakers. We don't need. We don't see business leaders. We don't see academic leaders. We don't have that public-private engagement on um, risk assessment, risk um, reality, um, and the integration. We don't see that conversation happening. at a national level and i really think the only way that that cultural change the cultural shift will occur is if the the political will is there to do so and it takes leadership to do that and we said earlier in the in the conversation that you know people are thinking in terms of of tactics they're not thinking in terms of strategy they're jumping from from problem to problem well that these two things are the same thing in my mind in that if you're not stopping to have the strategic conversation then you're not going to see the necessity of the kind of integration that you and I are talking about right now and we have to we at some point somebody has to stop and 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 make the national statement we have to stop jumping and we have to start thinking okay. and you are absolutely right and this is a global need it's not about just one nation or one entity how do we bring such a big global you know change um honestly i really think it it starts by these kinds of conversations that the more people that think about this the more people that talk about it the more people that hear it will begin to say you know what we need to have these kinds of conversations we need to have these kinds of movements and one of the things that i hope that that your viewers get out of this is that they have the capacity to start that conversation regardless of where they are in business ngo um ngo uh, government exactly wherever they are 
um, they can have this conversation. They can have it with their bosses. They can have it with their subordinates. They can have it with their elected officials. They can have it with their religious leaders. Um, because we need to make sure that this kind of movement is a truly grassroots from the top down and bottom up kind of integration conversation that includes every segment of, of civil society and every segment of government. There is a need for a greater dialogue, and that was one of the you know main reason why I thought about that you know we need to have a risk roundup where we can you know invite individuals from across industries, across nations, uh, governments, and organizations, academia, and we can have a very you know informed and intelligent uh, and a structured dialogue about how to go forward. I mean, I I am sure that there are others you know who see the need for integration and interconnectedness, and you know this frame. Work, but at the same time, you know, unless uh, the so far we have been having this tendency that unless you know governments do it, you know, we don't want to go forward. Right. Unless we are forced to do something, like see compliance and all regulations and all that. Unless we are forced to do something, we don't want to, you know, be responsible and accountable and try to bring any change on our own. So I think it's a change of cultural mindset, and that uh, we need to, you know understand and people need to understand across nations that you know it is no we are no, no longer living in a time where we can rely only on government to provide security that's right yeah security is no longer a government affair it's an ngio affair we all have to get involved and we as intelligent and responsible global citizens cannot say un unconcerned anymore especially when there is chaos, confusion, and crisis all around us. It is in our own interest and our nation's interest that we need to educate ourselves with the knowledge that is fundamental and necessary to analyze risk and issues objectively. Each one of us has a role to play in a digital global age. It is the role and responsibility which we carry as global citizens makes us responsible and accountable for what is happening across nations today. It is this common thread of integrated a common thread of risk and responsibility which none of us can overlook and none of us can ignore and none of us can pass on to others in a digital global age. Neither us nor nations can live and operate in a culture that lacks basic understanding and acknowledgement of risk. Neither us nor nations can deny or refuse to take personal and professional responsibility of the decisions that we make. Nor can we refuse the accountability and ownership of our decisions. Neither us nor nations can be in denial, nor can we develop tone deafness towards our critical interconnected as well as interdependent local, national, and global risk. It is time we change the culture within our nations to transfer our risk to others in an increasingly interconnected and interdependent digital global age. What are your thoughts on culture of transferring risk and responsibility? I, I think the key point of it is responsibility. I think that given the access to technology, the access to, in, to information, the access to mechanisms by which to make voices heard, that in, instead of a, a global uh, attitude of entitlement, we need to shift to a global attitude of responsibility. And that means responsibility for, for security, responsibility for the environment, responsibility for, for business ethics. I think there's a, uh, I think that's the conversation. Even before we can have the conversation about integration on, on risk and security, we need to have the conversation about uh, about responsibility. You're because right. you know, it, with with the capacity of technology to be able to launch micro satellites all around the globe, and to be able to have that information downloaded within seconds, to be able to monitor human rights around the world, to monitor conflict around the world. 
to monitor um, uh, you know, illegal weapons trafficking around the world. It's a responsibility that individuals have to be able to monitor those things, but to be able to, to do so in a, in a proper and, res and, and respectful way. I think t the technology exists. I think, again, as we said before, there's that need to, to move people out of the I deserve into the I need to protect. And I think uh, in the same line of thought, I think insurance industry can play a bigger role here too. Because, for example, you know, cyber insurance, there, I mean, so far insurance industry operates on a model that if someone wants to buy insurance or something, they can pay the premium, they can buy the policy, you know, and uh, they are covered on that. But I think insurance industry, what they can do is they can say that, okay, the you first we need to make sure that you have a security centric in, in, integrated risk management framework exactly. uh, within your organization that is functioning effectively that is the conditional if only if you have that then you know you are eligible to buy insurance and number two is that you know they need to identify what are the risks that entities can manage on their own and for that they should not be able to buy insurance policy because though the risk so far the culture is that okay let's just you know buy a policy and then transfer our risk to someone else that's right that, that should not be allowed so i think insurance industry can play a big role in bringing accountability towards you know managing risk that you know these are your entities internal risk you cannot pass on you cannot transfer those risks to other entities or other you know industries or you know your nation or other nations so if we can bring some kind of cultural change by you know thinking how to do things differently and uh, there is another common factor that i think we all need to think of as a nation because this is a different time that we live in like in so far you know how we were doing things differently in isolation age we cannot probably do things similarly in this cyberspace and digital global age because i think i feel that nations today lack the most essential and fundamental ability in having a collective common goal for their nation, their NGIOA, working together, united for the benefit of the nation. Today's NGIOA largely operates in silo as individual and independent entities across nations. Silo NGIOA operations of isolation age that are in existence today across nations, they have little or no understanding of how they are interconnected to each other or how they are interdependent on each other, nor do they understand how they affect each other within and across nations. The silo existence of NGIOA ignores its internal and external interconnectedness and interdependencies. This collective ignorance denies nations a fundamental ability to understand how each individual risk as well as decision of each individual entity impacts them all within and across nations. And I think this is a very critical risk facing nations today in a digital global age. Do you agree that as NGIOA expand beyond their national boundaries in a global age, there is a critical need for them to integrate, to have a collective risk identification, risk management, as well as decision-making abilities and capabilities? As, as the world becomes more globalized, what I've noticed is that we see um, NGIOAs becoming more internalized and so there's a lot of internal communication a lot of internal um you know review of risks but it's not it's not applied then to the larger to the larger world or to the organization or the individual outside of their own little their own little universe and you know for there ever to be the kind of integration that, that we're talking about 
it means that individuals, organizations, governments, faith communities need to go beyond the, the, the boundaries of their own physical but also legal reality and engage in not just dialogue but cooperation across borders and ideologies and, and structures to be able to have the kinds of, of um, interconnected reality when looking at risk but also when looking at opportunity. And I think that's the other side of the coin on this of what we've been talking about. Um, we've been speaking very much in terms of risk and security, but there's an other side, there's an other side to the coin of those, which is opportunity and potential. And that with the right kind of risk assessment, with the right kind of security system um, in place, then the opportunities and the, and the potentials increase, and they increase exponentially. But it really means getting outside of a comfort zone where many NGIOAs today are, are very happy being. It, it takes um, leadership, it takes resources, it takes a change of mindset to be able to move outside of those comfort zones. But if we're ever going to actually create a successfully interconnected and integrated um, globe as we're, as we're obviously moving toward, then we have to get out of those comfort zones. No, this is by no means is going to be in uh, uh, short term, you know, overnight years or probably coming centuries as we get ready for the space age. We are right now talking only about digital global age. And when we are closer to space age, all these things are going to be fundamental, you know, and we will need all those things. So I think, in, but you are right about that developing that culture of risk awareness. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, not going to be an overnight effort. It's going to be very complex. It's going to involve many, many players and it's going to require a lot of commitment but developing a culture of risk awareness I, is very critical and essential to the success of nations in a digital global age establishing integrated NGIA risk management framework i feel is that the is that is one way to build a risk conscious culture and society and nations currently lack any such risk governance framework at any level, local, national, or global. There are a lot of different risk management frameworks that are out there, and they are all uh, addressing different kinds of risk. And, you know, there is no collective integrated effort which, which you know, or integrated framework that integrates all the nation's industries, uh, government, uh, organizations, and academia. And uh, I feel that in a global age, nations seem to be... Uh, hoping to benefit from the current trend of digitalization and globalization with the same old governance framework and management framework and structure of localized economies. So as nations in the global age witness its margin of buffer zone rapidly shrinking and disappearing, as we see across many nations, what steps can be taken to help nations understand, acknowledge, and adapt to the needs of the changing global fundamentals of digital global age? I think as we, we see the rise of, of um, things like Bitcoin as, you know, a, a new source of, of, uh, um, of monetary systems that governments will and, and even businesses need to start looking at what are these new technologies, what are these new frameworks that are, that are coming into existence. And really, we, we need to, we as a culture, and I don't just mean we the United States, I mean the global culture in which we live. Um, there needs to be that that um, emphasis on future trends. There needs to be that emphasis on our risks and our opportunities to, uh, are, are uh, dependent on what's coming. And so we need to make sure to, to get out of this, again, like I said before, that comfort zone of where we sit, to be looking at what's coming down the pike. What are the things that we need to be concerned about? What are the things that we can take advantage of that will allow us to be able to set the right, the right kind of risk assessment the right kind of security assessment, but then also on that other side, the right kind of, 
of opportunity and, and, and benefit assessment. And so before we can, um, uh, you know, again, this comes back to the, the underlying theme of the conversation we've had today, that we need to stop being tactical and we need to start being strategic. And that's, again, across NGIOAs, regardless if you're the, a national government, a local government, an NGO, or even, you know, a, um, a business. We, there needs to be that long-term view. And anecdotally, one of the concerns that I have, at least on the government side, is that, you know, the, the National Intelligence um, Council here in the United States, um, every four years releases uh, a national intelligence um, report. Uh, and the report is on future trends and emerging technologies. Well, the report used to be 150, 200 pages. It would, it, uh, the authors would engage across fields, across um, industries, uh, across borders. They'd travel, they'd meet with, with people from around, from other countries. The new report that's coming out next year will, will, is the equivalent of a college research paper. It's 40 pages. It doesn't include climate change in the economy. It doesn't include faith. It doesn't include all of those things which right now are, are risks to, to the U.S. economy and to the U.S. security, let alone things that, that raise the potential of risk and, and security concerns in the future. And so if even something like our national intelligence reviews aren't taking real future trends into consideration, it, it's going to be a lot more work, I think, to be able to change that culture. But if that conversation, like the one we're having now, does not take place, then we'll never see that, that kind of shift happen. No, you are absolutely right. And I think uh, uh, it is not that, you know, the <laughs> lack of effort, there are a lot of initiatives going on, going on across nations. You know, there are a lot of different entities involved that are trying to uh, come up with different frameworks, come up with different standards, come up with different, you know, regulations. But they all their efforts are in silo and, you know, it, it's exactly right. bits and pieces and they are not integrated. So the question will come, you know, in the coming days and weeks and months and years is that who should develop these standards? Because That's right. Who should develop this framework? Who should be, you know, responsible for it? Because unless we have that one organizing body who does all these things, you know, who collectively, then that is not going to be integrated collective effort. And I think that's where we need to uh, keep an eye on who is, uh, which nations are, you know, uh, taking a step up and, you know, be taking responsibility of, to, you know, creating such organizations or such standardization body that can, you know, develop and create some framework. So I think uh, uh, there is a lot needs to be done. And, uh, I, I feel that, you know, our viewers are going to be uh, really happy with uh, the discussion and dialogue that we had today. Uh, we really appreciate your time and uh, effort and your thoughts, especially. And uh, we uh, hope that, you know, you have been nominated several times for Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I wish and I hope uh, that, you know, in the coming years, you actually get one. And <laughs> we look forward to that. Well, thank you, I, I think we all will be very happy to see you receive that uh, deserving award. Uh, that's it for today, friends. Although we can talk about this for hours, we have come to the end of the allotted time. And for more information on Risk Roundup and the upcoming Risk Dialogues, please go to riskgroupllc.com. Thank you, everyone, and please join us again. Thank you so much, Joe. It was really nice talking to you. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. Thank you.